in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. The time is now 3 p.m. Stay tuned for a Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. The endings are the rule, so divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture, drop the shadow. is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is December the 3rd, 2013. My God, December the 3rd. That means that day after tomorrow, I'm going to be 80. It's impossible. I can't deal with it. It's simply simply outside my comprehension. No one in my immediate family ever made it to 60. <laughs> I have no idea how to behave. I, I think I'll, I'll have to work on it. I, I thought today I would indulge myself. Yes, I'm told that when you're old, you can do anything you like. <laughs> Don't we wish? I think what I'll do today is just have fun. I'll just go look in my old... Uh, old journals and my books from long, long ago. See if I can remember who she was, that woman I grew up with, you know. Uh, <laughs> I once wrote a play uh, with three women. I split the psyche into three individuals. I called them, you know, the poet, the woman, and um, the actress. And they argued with each other, you know. I think the actress finally died off. <laughs> but it was the best way I could find to work out how, what is it, how the pieces of ourselves, you know, either fall away and and uh, wither. And then something else. I don't know whether, you know, whether we gel or coalesce, whether uh, whether we just pick one one persona and stick with that or whether they all blend never mind no rambling here now let's see I'll go back to the to the 70s that's what I'll do this is fun yes this is way fun uh, <laughs> this is an old book uh, basically a memoir here we go I bought this honest to god topless bra at the most esoteric lingerie shop in Berkeley. The European woman who owns the shop looks down her nose at the locals taking no solace from girls who go brawless. Ah, she smiles. Come back and see us when you need a good brassiere, my dear. <laughs> she rolls her R's. 
I try on the topless bra, she assures me it's the last one in stock this season. I buy it because it gives my breasts a terrific hoist. I look in the mirror and imagine I am the Empress Josephine with my breasts shoved up under my chin. Black, lace-covered bones, you know, the bones that hold hold the brassiere up. Uh, they lift and frame my flesh the first time I wear it. I get black and blue marks. Poor Josephine. Napoleon said one time or another that women have no rank. Their place in life, their socioeconomic score, depends upon the males with whom they find favor. One can find... Uh, a good master, a wise master, or a louse, but it's still a slave system, any way you call it. I mean, a rich master may be kind and generous, but you have to stay home and pour drinks for his friends. I mean, you have to. Well, seems the women's movement is seeping into my psychosexual adjustment. What can I do with an unused, topless bra? I am what I throw away. <laughs> that was long, long, long ago. I remember uh, later I was reading, oh gosh, I cannot remember the author, but it was a line I'll never forget. It was uh, uh, the cruelest description of women's breasts I have ever read. Uh, yes, the line goes, uh, man is watching a woman undress, and he says, uh, freed from their restraints, her breasts dropped like hanged men. That was it. <laughs> ever since then, I haven't had the courage <laughs> to put on a brassiere. Anyway, uh, let's see. Let me see if I can uh, find something a little saner. I notice, after all these years, that this book, uh, is it Telegraph Avenue then? This is a uh, memoir, yes. Um, I don't want to say maudlin, but I will say that there's a little too much... Well, let me just say that I was drinking in those days, yes. <laughs> anyway, this is an entry in the winter, 71, 1971. Mm, I met a man in a radical therapy group. He gave the impression of warmth and civilization. I wasted the usual hours making myself attractive before seeing him again. I wanted to be civilized but sensual. The first time we were alone together, he read me Charles Bukowski's story about a Venetian mermaid. The copulating mermaid of Venice, California. It's all about two drunks who steal a cadaver, 
discover it to be the body of a beautiful blonde woman. They rape her remains and swim her out to sea. This was the first stage of his foreplay. I dropped a cup of tea in his lap to make sure he could still feel. Then I read him the autopsy of Marilyn Monroe. It left him cold. <laughs> Let's see what else is going on. I'm just going to say, I have two children in this book. Let's see, they would be very young. Uh, not even up to middle school. Mm-hmm. Here we go. I love the... I love the bits that I wrote in the Cafe Mediterranean down on Telegraph Avenue. Yes, that's, as I said, Telegraph Avenue then. Not now, but then. So long ago. Another Berkeley afternoon on Telegraph Avenue. You can be just as lonely here at the Grand Hotel. We sit in the cafe... Ms. Magdalene, in her tie-dyed hair shirt. She sits with the young males. Take me for a ride on your motorcycle. Eva Braun rides again. Sooty Sal claims a mate. They all wind up dead, bumped off in a bunker, sent to a guillotine, Hanging headless next to Benito. All loyal to the end. You can't tell them anything. That's what I say. <laughs> the girls nibble rolls. Digest cigarettes talking to Byronic boys with greasy hair and perfect teeth. Ah. Oh. Song of the Sad Café, Suburban Dropouts, Zorba the Sneak, Lord Jim the Narcissistic Darky, who admits he sold his own brother to Barnacle Bill the Sailor. Ah, Bill barges in with a size Hemingway fish slung over his shoulder, sealed in a plastic bag. Can't drip, you know. In the street. In the street, our leader is playing frisbee with the police. These are the days of the flowers. On a clear day, you can see San Pablo. They gave Timothy Leary a tangerine and some scraps, some scraps, some seaweed, some dry kelp. This is the sort of scene which surfaces when cannons fire to raise the dead. They say the noise of guns brings up the drowned, the drowned souls who hide at the bottom of the sea. They leave the darkness of the deep and we remember, we see the floating debris. It is the debris, you see, that distinguishes us one from the other, that muck 
on the surface of things. What debris did you see? Flowers floating in the hair of corpses. The fairest cheek, the whitest hand. Rots in heaps on the sand. Better dead than dying, says the veteran at the bar, who came back to tell us we wrecked his war. Leaves swimming with the raw sewage on the crest of these waves, while the surfer clings to drifting wood and the mermen slip below. Old condoms drift to shore near broken bottles in the sand castles, near the sea moss at the foot of the cliff where the caves draw back and whisper. <laughs> in that little piece, I, uh, I, well, I, I meant to say euphemism. There were a couple of words that we can't use on the air, but I just skipped over them. I don't know whether it's worth, uh, you know, just fixing them, uh, but never mind. I, I'll just, I'll just leave them out or skip over the bits where the words uh, would get us in trouble with the F C C. I was thinking, uh, as I read this, last night I saw a movie called The Piano, Jane Campion's early work, a masterpiece, actually. Holly Hunter, Harvey Keitel, Sam Neill, and a little girl, Anna Paquin. There's a beautiful scene at the end that reminds me of these bits I wrote about the people at the bottom of the sea, the souls, the drowned at the end of the movie she lets her piano go into the sea um, it's such a strange scene it's in a little boat and they're on their way to the big ship she demands that they throw her piano overboard she needs to get rid of it it's her something part of her communication with the world and as they throw it into the water a bit of rope catches her foot and pulls her down. She manages to get free and she says that she chose life. And then at the end of the film, a couple scenes later, the piano is at the bottom of the sea. It's a beautiful, beautiful shot. Uh, cinematography, I don't know how they do these things, but it actually did look like... Um, the ghosts at the bottom of the sea, yes. I always think, when I see pictures like that, I always think, well, where's the mermaid's grandmother? Yes. Anyway, I can't even remember the lines, but she has some beautiful lines uh, about the, uh, what is it? The bottom of the sea, the silence, that's what it was. It wasn't the sound of silence, but... Something along those lines, yes. Voices of the children will make the silence sweet. Anyway, what have I got next in this old book? <laughs> Here's a poem. First poem that I published in the uh, Berkeley Barb, a very old newspaper back in the day. 
I think I got, I don't know whether I got $7 or $15. I remember selling two poems about that time. 1972 it was? No, 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 71. Anyway, uh, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of stuff in this entry uh, about Ophelia's floating on seas of permanent waves. I'm trying to be facetious and sneer at the uh, masochism of women. And uh, it turns into a kind of strange poem. I don't know why the Berkeley Barb liked it. It's called Sand. Vista Point at Mendocino is the extreme west point of California. Read the sign there by the sea. Raw sewage, this beach, quarantined. I've gone about as far as I can go amidst the garbage and the flowers. And she is standing on the shore in my long black cape costume in the wind. Back to the sea with thee, love. There she was, and I saw her, Typhoid Mary in beads. <laughs> the next sections, I love to read them all together. They're all about Lilith and my discovery of uh, the woman who was married to Adam before Eve. I wrote several little short plays about her. I loved the persona of Lilith, uh, Anyway, I'll save those for another day. Uh, they're kind of, once again, there's a little bit of morbidity here. I think possibly, now that I'm 80, mortality. I find mortality pretty boring subject, yes. Mm-hmm. Been there, done that. I think it's somewhere in the 40s, at least for me. That was my most... Uh, What's the word? Dark night of the soul, period, yes. <laughs> when actually, when your mortality is serious, and uh, you know that every moment is goodbye, this stuff doesn't quite work. Uh, as I said, I have, let's see, the two little boys here are called Simon and Sam. Because I don't want to, yes, I don't use their their names, but, uh, okay. This is called Cookie Crumb. All my life I've lied, made things up, made the picture fit the dream. All my life I told myself that chalk was cheese. Until, of course, it was. <laughs> There's a great deal about, um, Vitality, yes, creative vitality and sexual vitality. <laughs> anyway, at the end of this section, I go to a poetry reading. I spent many, many hours in the 1970s going to poetry readings, reading my poems, listening to the poems of young people and old ones. Let's see. 
April evening, 1975. I don't want to go home to an empty television set. I'll go to La Promethea. Listen to the poets. Here they are, very young, yes. I feel trapped between the generations. <laughs> Who isn't? This cafe could be North Beach in the 50s. Only hippies are not beatniks and are not repeating what we were saying then. Footnote here. Yes. The, the, uh, the cafes in the 50s, it was different then. That was all about jazz and we talked nonstop all night long. Uh, the, uh, hippie scene was much different. It was certainly quieter. <laughs> I think they were stoned most of the time. Anyway, uh, I pin false flowers on my dress. The belladonna deadly nightshade. Bell-shaped deep crimson flowers with glistening black berries. I set my black hat at an angle. No one would recognize me if I changed my clothes. On the wall hangs a painting of La Salamandrine, the one who passes through fire unscathed. The portrait of Promethea smiles at La Salamandrine. <laughs> the poet's platform, yes, has a kind of noose hanging from the ceiling, yes, uh, twined with plastic red roses. A poet arrives, taking a chair uh, to the stage. He piles his work on the platform and a few on the chair where the manuscripts spill. He pulls up another chair on which he places his beer and another pile of manuscripts. This goes on for some time. His voice can be heard faintly under a wide-brimmed hat. He tells us he is a gay poet. His poems are printed on embossed paper because he likes the look of the thing. He makes academic jokes which underplay life. Wreaths of cigarette smoke come from underneath the great flat hat. The poems are all about the pain of being cast as the other woman in his relationships. He is the other woman with a mustache, that kind of thing. I won't call him a derivative derelict because I liked his hat. Another poet reads, and he is gay too, he says, but he wants to be called queer. <laughs> He dresses tough and reads crotch and foreskin poems. Two middle-aged straight males have wandered into the wrong bar. There is an altercation, some obscene words and gestures. Damn hippie preverts, says one of the men. The cognoscenti then demands silence for the esoteric obscenity coming from the stage. Oh, so few voices in the world and so many echoes. 
Who was the first original, the first cave person to speak? In the beginning was the word, and the word was probably, oh, euphemism. <laughs> and everyone everywhere said it all at once. When the queer poet finishes, he says he hopes he scared the hell out of us. A black poet admonishes the audience to clap equally for each poet in turn. Because it's all the same, man. It's all all the same. The same voices echoing forever. <laughs> I go on to describe a, a very bizarre a surrealist play that uh, a group of poet performers did. Uh, as the last poet says, he hasn't anything left to say. He said it all. But he didn't want to go home without taking his turn, so he thought he would show us a little can of worms. Each little worm should be examined in turn, he says, because it's all the same, man. Each one, each worm, each word. <laughs> and I go on about, you know, poems in laundromats, the kind of thing, uh, we were into that. Uh, George Jackson sitting under a hairdryer. Topsy curlers, yes. And finally, finally, at the end of this year, <laughs> right, there is a list. It's called Last List. It's all finite, folks. The orgasms and the apples, the cars and candy bars of a lifetime. Count them, the books and the movies, the operations and adulteries, triumphs and trips to the seashore. The poet is born, not made. Those of us finite literary ladies, leprechaunesses, loveresses, prophetesses, Ms. Fit and Ms. Unsolicited, we're on the shelf. Didn't work out. So we didn't get in the big book. Let us go then, you and I, to sink in sorrow or in gin. We have lingered in the trousers of our times by coffeehouse Lotharios abandoned and seduced till modern poets date us and we're goosed. That last is with apologies to... Uh, T.S. Eliot, uh, <laughs> I, I rewrote, you know, the end of his poem. Uh, everyone knows it so well. Uh, once again, we're back to the mermaids. Let's see if I have time for one more. One more. I love the little, little tiny pieces that I, there was a local magazine called City Minor. And uh, it was so nice I could put two and three line bits in there. Here's one called The Examined Life. I sometimes regret that the man I loved the most was not a good or particularly admirable person. I should have loved the best the most. It would have made me seem a better person. But I didn't. And I'm not. <laughs> then there's more and more uh, bits about how we pick ourselves up 
and put ourselves together and go on. Yes. Uh, the Irish never listen. We hear everything, but we wouldn't be caught dead listening. Goes on and on that way. Uh, I wish I had time to read to you about being Irish. I'll, I'll save that. Next week I won't be here. I'm preempted for some reason. But I hope to see all of you at the KPF, KPFA Holiday Crafts Fair. That's December the 14th and 15th at the Concourse in San Francisco. I'll try to get there both days. Uh, I have four books for sale. And this year, I'll see if I can't get together some tapes. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy... Go as easy as you can. You are invited to celebrate the holiday season honoring the 50th anniversary of Glide co-founders Cecil Williams and Janice Mirakatani. The annual music and spoken word gala is a benefit for Glide Memorial Church programs. The event will feature performances by the Glide Ensemble and Change Band, San Jose Tycho, Tom Johnston, of the Doobie Brothers. Renelle Brooks-Moon, radio host and San Francisco Giants announcer, will handle MC chores. Honorary co-chairs Dr. Maya Angelou and Robin Williams will host. Hors d'oeuvres and libations will be provided. The gala will be held at the San Francisco War Memorial Opera House, 401 Venice Avenue, on Wednesday, December 4th. 6 p.m. arrival, 7 p.m. concert. For details or ticket information, please call 415 864 33 Three zero.